This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe. Welcome to another episode of Preservation Oaks. In this series, we introduce you to professionals from museums, cultural, genealogical, and historical societies across the United States. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the program. Good day, everyone. Welcome to Preservation Oaks. This is your host, Sean Thomas Radcliffe, coming to you from Salt Lake City. And this is the internationally syndicated original talk program on MicroStream Radio, where we feature interviews with professionals from museums, cultural and heritage institutions, historical and genealogical societies across the United States. Hey, thanks for listening. By the way, our main platform is preservationoaks.podbean.com. But we're also on almost every podcast platform, as well as Facebook, TikTok, Odyssey, and YouTube. So wherever you listen to the program, I appreciate it very much when you like, comment, follow, or subscribe. This is a special episode of Preservation Oaks. In our journey across the United States to meet with professionals from museums, cultural and heritage institutions, historical and genealogical societies, we've met with organizations who have curators and archivists. We've also met with societies who have medium to large artifact collections and don't have an archivist or a curator. I started asking myself why some societies invest in a curator or archivist or both, and why others with similar sized artifact collections don't. I understand that this decision is often and primarily based solely on funding and cost, but apart from that, I want to try to understand more about the value of these roles to an organization and for the collections they're preserving on behalf of the people and communities they serve. I want to have a clearer picture of when there's a need for these roles, when it's appropriate for an organization to consider adding them, and how much funding will be needed to properly archive and curate archived collections. And so in this Who Needs an Archivist episode, we'll discuss the role of an archivist, the benefits and value of spending funds on an archivist, both to the community and to the society. This episode is for societies, their board of directors, and the members who are considering funding a qualified archivist, and also for the general public who'd like to understand more about what an archivist does and the benefits of having one. That way they can plan their donations to their supported society, allowing them to engage with a qualified professional archivist and or discerning the value of and retaining the one they have. To discuss these questions and others, Cynthia Sweet, the executive director of the Iowa Museum Association, was so kind. She connected us with Cheyenne Yanstadter, the archives manager and outreach associate at the Museum of Danish America. 
All right, that being said, let's get this show snapping. If you're listening and you'd like to be a guest on the program or if you have questions or comments about the program, spin off an email to preservationoaks at gmail.com. Couple of jokes. A couple's on a date at a fancy restaurant. The woman tells the man to say something to her that will get her heart racing. He says, I forgot my wallet. A Sunday school teacher asked her little children one Easter Sunday as they were on the way to the church service, and why is it necessary to be quiet in church? The bright little girl piped up, because people are sleeping. Take some tea, some Twining's tea. Now you can email us anytime at preservationoaks at gmail.com. Hey, I'd like to give a shout out to the Iowa Museum Association. Their vision statement is, We believe Iowa museums are essential to their communities, and their mission statement is, Working in the interests of Iowa museums, the Iowa Museum Association builds organizational capacity, advocates to heighten awareness of the field, and fosters community. Iowa museums include art centers and museums, botanical gardens, children's museums, historic sites, historical societies, living history sites, nature centers, natural history museums, planetariums, science and technology centers, and zoos. You'll find them on the internet at iowamuseums.org. Great organization. Now let me introduce you all to Cheyenne Yansdatter, starting with a brief biography. As mentioned before, Cheyenne Yansdatter is the Archives Manager and Outreach Associate for the Museum of Danish America. She's an experienced collections manager with a demonstrated history of working in the museum and archive fields. She's skilled in public speaking and the Danish language. Cheyenne received a Bachelor of Arts in International Studies, German Language from the Dana College, a Danish heritage school. Cheyenne's Danish heritage and Danish language fluency are major assets to the museum and Danish-American communities. She achieved her Master's of Library and Information Science, called an MLIS, focused in the management of digital collections from the University of Denver. She joined the museum in 2017 and began working on a two-year grant-funded project to organize two sets of archival collections into one cohesive archive. In 2019, a second grant was written to process the Danish Sisterhood of America collection the largest collection donated to the museum to date. Shortly thereafter, Cheyenne was offered a permanent position at the museum in a dual role as a part-time archivist and a part-time outreach associate. Cheyenne is the first archivist to be employed by the Museum of Danish America, and in my view is uniquely qualified to help us understand the role of an archivist. Welcome to the program, Cheyenne. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Sean. Hey, you know, I'm very honored to have you here today. Very much appreciate your time and especially your expertise. Thanks so much for helping us understand more about the archivist role. I will do my best. <laughs> I've always been a bit confused about the role of an archivist as compared to like a curator. And so I thought, well, let's do a special episode and try to understand not only what an archivist does, but also for the many societies out there that could benefit from an archivist but haven't thought of going that direction yet, what is the criteria to have one? But before I do that, I went through the Iowa Museums Association and Cynthia Sweet, the executive director, was kind enough to put us in touch with you. 
Can you tell us a little bit about the Museum of Danish America where you work? Sure, I'd be happy to. First of all, location, we're located in Elkhorn, Iowa, which is about halfway between Omaha and Des Moines on I-80 as a reference point for those who are familiar with the Midwest. There are, of course, billboards directing you if you should ever want to visit. And we primarily tell the story of Danish-American experience as well as historic and modern influences on Denmark and the United States and the continuing story of how a nation of immigrants shape American identity. So I pretty much took that basically just from our mission. But uh, to break that down, we're telling the Danish-American story and how that's evolved over time. That's great. And if I understand it correctly, you know how to speak Danish, right? I do. I do. I speak Danish fluently. That's very good. It comes into play with a lot of the archival materials that I work with. I would say at least half, maybe more, are actually in Danish. And it's very helpful for being able to determine what I'm looking at. Oh, cool. Can you help us understand a little bit about your background, how you came to do what you do now? You are the archives manager of the Museum of Danish America, right? Yes, I am. So I attended the University of Denver and received my Master's of Library and Information Science back in 2015. I was then searching for a position working in archives or libraries and a posting for a position at the Museum of Danish America. I came across it and I thought, well, how perfect. I had not actually heard of the museum before, even though I attended Dana College, which was in Blair, Nebraska for my undergraduate degree. So I was in the neighborhood, I guess, about an hour away from here in Nebraska. The ability to use my Danish language skills along with my newly educated skills in the archival direction was pretty surprising posting to find. So I I started here at the museum in 2017. The museum had never had a full-time archivist or trained archivist on staff before, and they wrote a grant specifically to have someone come in and organize their archival collections into a more usable archive. And that's how I started here. Um, I only expected to be here for two years. We then wrote a second grant to keep me here, working on another large collection here at the museum. And then I showed my value to the to the museum as a whole and was offered a permanent position, which I am now in. Fantastic. I'll bet that museum's really something. Someday yeah. I'll probably get up there and take a look at it. It's really beautiful. It's um, it's an unexpected gem out in sort of the middle of nowhere. (laughs) Well, before we get into the life of an archivist and try to understand more about that, I'd like to give the contact information of the Iowa Museums Association first and then the Museum of Danish America. You can contact the Iowa Museums Association by phone at 319-239-2236 You can write them at P.O. Box 824, Cedar Falls, Iowa, 50613, all right? And then the Museum of Danish America is at 2212 Washington Street in Elkhorn, Iowa, 51531. 
For general correspondence, you can write them an email at info at danishmuseum.org. You can call them for general calls at 712-764-7001. If you've got a genealogy-related inquiry, you can contact their genealogy center by mail at genealogy at danishmuseum.org. And the genealogy mailing address is 4210 Main Street. P.O. Box 249, Elkhorn, Iowa, 51531. For genealogy calls, you can call them at 712-764-7008. They're on Facebook as the Museum of Danish America. Their website is danishmuseum.org. Does that all sound right, Cheyenne? Sounds right to me. Okay, good. All right, let's get into talking about the role of an archivist. You know, I watch a lot of these documentaries, you know, and they have museum personnel. It's mostly archaeology and stuff like that. Even the BBC carries the, the curators at the, at the London Museum doing things. And they always show a person, you know, sometimes they're in a, a, a white lab coat. They're sitting at a table with an artifact and they're looking through some kind of a magnifying glass with a light and they're scratching away at an artifact to clean it. Is that the role of an archivist, or, or what does an archivist do in an organization? <laughs> yeah, so first of all, I would say that generally archivists work mostly with documentary artifacts, so photographs, other documents. For me specifically, I work with a lot of immigration documents, passports, birth certificates, letters, correspondence, things like that. I don't wear a lab coat. Although um, I do sometimes pick my outfit depending on what I'm what I'm going to be doing that day. There are dirtier tasks than others where you're going through new materials before they've been rehoused and they have been sitting, you know, in someone's attic for who knows how long and have lots of dust on them. So I I sometimes choose my outfit accordingly, but I wouldn't say that I that I wear a white coat. Okay. Also, now when you're talking about artifacts, like a physical artifact, I do say most of the time archivists work with documents because as we'll talk about later, sometimes the role of an archivist encompasses more depending on the funding capabilities of your institution. But here at the museum, we have a registrar who works with our object collection and something additional there. A lot of those artifacts, when they handle them, they handle them with gloves to avoid getting, you know, oils from your hands or contact trace from artifact to artifact. But archivists often do not wear gloves when they're handling material. And that's because some documents can be very delicate and it's a lot easier to feel how delicate the item that you're holding is without gloves on. We just make sure to wash our hands a lot. We have some pretty dry hands around the collections. So, but yeah, I would, I would say that, that those are some of the, the differences between an archivist and a registrar or curator of collections. I'm not sure. I, I've never heard the term registrar. Regis, what is it? Registrar. 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 Yeah. yeah. I've heard that term before. What did they do? Sure. So. It is often called like a curator of collections or curator of artifacts, but a registrar, technically, basically you're registering all of the 
artifacts. So you're cataloging, describing, doing all of that with the artifacts and caring for them. Okay, got it. So you're trying to log it into the museum. Exactly, exactly. And that's what the archivist does as well. They archive and catalog documentary artifacts into the system. And you know what? Don't feel bad. I hadn't heard the term uh, registrar until I started at the museum either. Okay. And there are some differences also between an archivist who works in primarily just an archive and those who work in a museum setting. Yeah, there are some some differences that I was unaware of until I started here. Okay. And I know that there's all kinds of different types of museums. I've interviewed several folks that have had county museums, and they've got artifacts and exhibits and so on. And and then I've interviewed people from very large museums that have several thousand artifacts, if mm-hmm. not millions. And then there, I've interviewed folks that are at like a county historical association with a small museum. How does the archivist's role differ from organization to organization? Well, I kind of hinted at that before, Sean. It really depends a lot on funding, I would say. At our organization, we are lucky enough to have a archivist currently and a genealogist slash librarian who works in our genealogy center. That's where our mostly research library is located. We also have a registrar that works with our object collection, and we have a curator of exhibits who creates exhibits for the museum and or connects with other museums to bring exhibits here. We're super lucky in that we have enough funding to have a separate person who works on each of those things. Right. For a lot of organizations, they don't have that funding. And so some person in the organization would wear all three or all four of those hats. That's correct. And even I can tell you that there is a historical society very close to here, the Shelby County Historical Society, where their director wears all of those hats. So she is in charge of collections management, as well as pretty much everything at the at the historical society. So it's really dependent on funding, I would say. But I did a I was a volunteer during my graduate program at a small archive and library where their director also wore the hat of being the librarian and archivist and she was a trained librarian and archivist but relied pretty heavily on student workers or other volunteers to do any of the cataloging and organizing. Okay. Yeah. What's it take to become a qualified archivist? Well, I can speak mostly to my path to getting there. I enrolled in a two-year program, a Master of Library and Information Science at the University of Denver. I actually just looked at their website today, and um, they now offer an online program as well. I chose that program originally because it was in person, whereas a lot of other schools were offering online programs. And I just, I wanted it to be an in-person program. Through that program, you take many fundamentals classes about library and archival arrangement and description. Uh, Those are, those are some, you know, terms that are really used in in the profession is arrangement and description. So, organization of 
how you organize materials and and describe them. And then you can also take more specified courses. I focused a lot on digital collections and preserving and managing digital collections, but I also took courses in traditional archives and how to arrange and describe those collections. Now, you have Um, to understand the type of paper and the type of acid in the paper so that you can preserve things properly, right? Well, yes and no. I mean, that that is certainly part of it. I would say that goes to a different part of the profession where you're looking more at conservation of uh, items and maybe fixing damages to items. That's more science-y involved. I will say that you have to understand uh, or be able to find products to preserve these materials. So you're wanting to get boxes and folders and such that are acid-free to sort of slow the process of aging and degradation. Okay. Interesting. So it took you two years and Mm -hmm. did you have to then do an internship? Yeah, there was a practicum involved in my program. It was one of the final courses that I took. I had to actually go in the field and work in an archive. And then I also, throughout your education, you also want to do various volunteer opportunities. So uh, they recommend that you find different volunteer opportunities within that program. I think, so I've only had my degree, well, I guess it's almost been eight years now. So I think that there are a lot of, there's a push to remove some of the barriers of access and education. And also, I think there's a bigger push to create funded or paid internships rather than requiring a student to do things for free. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. I'm I'm very much in favor of that. I, it was hard. It was it was pretty hard while I was in school to work full time, go to school full time, and also find time to volunteer to get oh, yeah. you know, something on my resume to help me get a job later. That's quite a commitment. Yeah. Wow. So now you're a trained archivist. What kind of tools does the archivist need to be successful? So I would say you learn a lot in your in your program about best practices and the standard that you want to follow. Uh, one of the things that I learned through my volunteer opportunities and internships was that it's not always possible to get all the way to the best practice but you always want to reach for it. So I think the most important thing is to have stable housing for your documents. If there are folders that something comes in that are not acid-free, making sure to transfer them to acid-free folders and acid-free boxes. Of course, a digital cataloging system is fantastic, but for institutions that just don't have the funding to make that happen, Having an Excel spreadsheet where you catalog your documents is, it works just as well. Yeah. And I think as long as you can start a numbering system that is easily followable. And so creating that, that Excel spreadsheet that logs all of your artifacts or documents is important. You can also create a finding aid just using a Word document for each of those boxes that just 
is basically a roadmap to what is housed within that box. And it makes it easier for your user to find what they're looking for, whether that be a researcher or even yourself. Sometimes you're the user of these materials. And the primary purpose of an archivist is to organize things so that they're usable and findable later. Okay. So does the registrar put things into the software for the catalog, like Past Perfect or something like that? Or does yeah. the archivist do that? We both do. Okay. So our institution does use Past Perfect. Both of us catalog, we just catalog in different areas of the catalog, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. How long did it take you to learn Past Perfect? I'm still learning things. Yeah. I would say that about the profession as a whole, you never know everything. No one can ever know everything about the archival profession. And there are still aspects of Past Perfect that I learn to this day. How long did it take me? I'm, I'm pretty good with technology. And so the basics of it, I learned maybe just a couple of weeks, honestly. There are, though, more in-depth uses of Past Perfect that I'm myself and probably unaware of. Yeah. Well, they're changing it all the time with new releases too. Yes. And putting yeah. more of it online and, you know, all yeah. this other stuff. Yeah. When I, when I said that some institutions can't afford to have an online catalog, there are new options becoming available all the time. There's something called Preservica, which I actually looked into last year, which is a, an open source platform. And, fairly inexpensive. So, I mean, there are always options out there if you want to go with something like that. But if you want really inexpensive, an Excel spreadsheet works just fine. Yeah, I've interviewed organizations that use a spreadsheet. Yeah. And honestly, we do too. In certain scenarios, we use it as a backup for some things, just in case. So, and it's easier to print out a list from Excel than printing out a list for, with, with most of the fields fairly concisely than printing out a list from Past Perfect sometimes. Ah, okay. Yeah. So what kind of challenges does an archivist face? I think the biggest challenge that we face is buy-in from our stakeholders. So really showing the value of the archive. It's not quite as sexy and interesting to look at a document than to see an object. Education is really important in that aspect and making sure that people understand what it is that you do and and why it's important to preserve these documents and stories. Absolutely. Now, what I've got so far, Cheyenne, is you handle mostly documents only. The mm-hmm. document comes in. You don't really conserve it, but you categorize it and catalog it and make sure that it's properly archived and stored. Correct. Okay. All right. I got it. Yeah. I also fulfill, if people are looking for material for research purposes, I, I answer research requests and do scanning of material if that is needed. We're, we're not exactly centrally located, so it, it helps to be able to connect over the internet. Well, plus every organization that I've run into so far has four times as many documents as they do artifact objects. Yeah. You know, maybe even 10 times as much. 
some of these organizations are in the millions of photographs and papers. And, and if you yeah. can't categorize that and lay your hands on what you need, oh, that's a yeah. big problem. Yeah, I would totally agree. I mean, there's not a point to having all of those. Do- there, well, there's not as much of a point to having all of those documents if they're sitting on a shelf and nobody knows what's in it and you can't get to it, you know? Yeah. I guess that's that's really the big function of an archivist is making sure that things are findable and easy to get to. Well, Cheyenne, I hate to interrupt, but it's time to take a break for a few minutes. Okay. All right, listeners, we'll be right back after these important messages. This program will now pause for universal identification. Remember that feeling of wonder when you learned something fascinating about the past for the very first time? The Old Fort Genealogical Society is bringing the past back to life. Their goal is to collect, preserve, and disseminate knowledge and information with reference to genealogical and related historical, biographical, and heraldic data on behalf of the people of Fort Scott and Bourbon County, Kansas. Be a part of the action by volunteering and supporting the Old Fort Genealogical Society. Visit them on the internet at ksgenweb.org backslash society backslash ftscott and learn more about this valuable local nonprofit organization. Donate, join, become a member and visit them today in the Memorial Hall at 221 South National Avenue, Fort Scott, Kansas, 66701. Ah, history. The aroma is like rich farm soil or a familiar old book, the flavor bold and decadent, the touch divine. And the stories? Yes, the stories are luxury simply defined. Introducing Preservation Oaks, a program featuring museums, cultural and heritage institutions, historical and genealogical societies across the United States. If you think you're familiar with the stories of history, you haven't experienced listening to Preservation Oaks, the program that invites you to experience each unique episode featuring professionals from these essential organizations. Select any episode from wherever you get your podcasts, then sit back and enjoy the luxury of history. No worries, because the enjoyment's on us. This is Stacy Gosling, the president of the Winnesha County Historical Society in Decorah, Iowa, and I had a lot of fun as a guest on Preservation Oaks. This is Carrie Eilert from the Cedar Falls Historical Society, and I love listening to Preservation Oaks on MicroStream Radio. This is Ben Terwilliger, the executive director of the Eudora Area Historical Society and Museum, located in Eudora, Kansas, and you're listening to Preservation Oaks. Nine out of ten listeners agree, Preservation Oaks is the best podcast on the internet. And now, back to Preservation Oaks. Preservation Oaks. I'm your host, Sean Thomas Radcliffe, and we're here today with Cheyenne Yanstatter, 
Archives Manager and Outreach Associate at the Museum of Danish America, located at 2212 Washington Street in Elkhorn, Iowa. Cheyenne, let's pick up where we left off, and welcome back. Thank you. You know, to me, it's a difficult question, and I'm hoping you can help me understand more and my listeners understand more. What's the profile of an organization where funding an archivist will bring value to the organization and its members? And how does an organization know when it's time or when certain criteria are met to think about retaining an archivist? Sure. And Sean, you know, that is a really difficult question. And it's hard even for me to to answer. I think if the primary function of an organization is to provide archival materials to the public, then I think having someone who is trained in how to organize and make those accessible is really important. But funding can take a major role in whether that is possible. As I've said before, I mean, I discussed before what one of the largest things that faces archivists or one of the largest challenges, but I think it is one of the largest challenges that faces cultural institutions as a whole or museums and research institutions is funding, time, and staff, people interested in working on those things. But for an institution who is interested in hiring an archivist, I think seeking out grants to fund a project is a good way to start. I think you mentioned how some of the institutions you speak to have a much larger volume of documents than they do even of physical artifacts or objects. I think that that became apparent to the museum that they had a lot of documentary material and the genealogy center manager who was actually the sort of proponent and started the archive back in 2003, I think she had retired And the new genealogy center manager, I think, drew attention to the fact that there was a lot of material and it perhaps wasn't necessarily all that accessible. And so while they weren't ready to hire someone as a full-time permanent position, they were able to seek funding for at least a project position. So I, I think that's a great place to start for an institution, sort of assessing your own collection and creating a project. And maybe sometimes that project is to assess the collection, you know? I like that Um, idea very much of doing a grant, bringing an archivist in to assess and then taking it from there. Yeah. And for some institutions, that is the only option or the best first option. And once that collection is assessed, then they're able to bring that to their stakeholders and the people who perhaps donate to them and be able to prove why it would be really beneficial to have a, that position even longer. It really comes down to, I think, from what you've told us is, if I'm an organization and, and I'm able to lay my hands on any document that I need very quickly because I can reference it in a database somewhere, in a spreadsheet or something, mm-hmm. then I don't really have a problem. I don't really need an archivist at that point, do I? You don't necessarily need an archivist. I would certainly recommend that if you're an institution who perhaps can't find that funding or doesn't have someone on staff who would be able to 
write a successful grant. There are, through the Society of American Archivists, there are lots of materials that you can access information about how to preserve. And I would really recommend that people do that and make sure that they're using good archival arrangement and description. And there, there are courses, and I, I had actually written that down um, for some of the process to become an archivist. A sort of alternative route is to go to the Society of American Archivists continuing education area. And mm-hmm. there are courses that are, you know, less expensive, maybe a hundred, two hundred dollars to get some of those basics and fundamentals that can help someone who is not necessarily a trained archivist. Right. Now, if you create your own categorization that's not a standard in the industry, in other words, how archivists are trained, but you're doing just fine, as soon as you go to transition that, you may have a problem. Yeah, it certainly can be difficult. And I would say even with the museum, because they had been doing it a certain way for such a long time. It just didn't make sense to, you know, reinvent the wheel. I went with the arrangement and description that they already had making some adjustments that I thought would make things a little easier. So that's something that you really learn also is that what's the best use of your time? And it was not the best of use of my time to renumber and change everything, you know? Right. Yeah. Makes sense. Okay, so if I'm a a director of an organization, a museum, or a historical society with the museum, I got tons of documents, and I'm having an issue with accessibility. I can't find what I need to find very quickly. It takes five volunteers to go into a room and dig through boxes until we find it. Mm -hmm. That could be your justification to talk to the board of directors about doing a grant and doing an assessment and potentially bringing on a qualified archivist. Yeah. When I looked at that question, you know, what criteria would they use? I mean, access was the first word that I put there. That's the best way to sell it to your board of directors. If if things are not accessible, then what's the point in storing them, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yep. I didn't even think of that. So what's it take to bring in an archivist? What kind of funds does an organization need in order to hire and retain a qualified archivist? Yeah, so that's also very dependent on your location. For example, cost of living is much less expensive here in Elkhorn, Iowa than it is in, say, Denver, Colorado. So it really varies. There are some tools I I would recommend, like if an institution is looking to hire someone and they're not quite sure what to offer, you can always look at comparable institutions, job postings, and see. There's also on the... American Alliance of Museums website, they have a salary survey that they did back in 2017. They're due to to do another one because that was several years ago now, but it does cost to purchase the full report, but it is very detailed. It has many different roles within a museum organization, including an archival. Basically, they took a survey of professionals across the United States, and it's also broken down by area of the United States and gives you sort of a a baseline and a high end of salary information. So that can be very helpful as well. I can say that our museum within the last few years has sort of ballpark had a salary range of 38 to 44,000 for a person in the collections department. And now that is 
the, the range is because if you're just out of school and this is your first position, you know, right. and then increases with experience. The salary also is going to be dependent on whether you plan to offer benefits to your, your archivist as oh, well. Right. Yeah. For your collections person, the museum pays for all of our benefits as well. So we're pretty lucky. But I do know of other institutions where that is not part of the salary because they just can't afford it. So that that comes into play as well. But have you ever heard the old saying, if you give a mouse a cookie? Yes. Okay. so if you give a mouse a cookie, they're going to want a glass of milk. If I'm an organization that is thinking about bringing on an archivist, What other types of costs come with it? Like, has the archivist been trained to use certain things that day one, when they come into the organization, they're going to want? Yeah, that's a really good question. I would say probably materials is going to be the first at the top of that list of what things cost. The most basic thing that probably an archivist is going to expect is to be able to to get those materials they need, boxes and folders, perhaps archival tissue paper for use. I wanted, when I started, a flatbed scanner, a large scanner, large format scanner, sorry. We did not have that when I started. And thankfully, the museum was able to find funding and provide that. But it it just makes it easier. And I was able to sort of sell that by saying, you know, we're not in the middle of a big city. People don't visit us often. If we're able to scan some of our materials and have them online, then we are connecting with our users more easily. Yeah. And so that was one thing that I maybe didn't expect, but really pushed for. Yeah, that's a good so, thought. Good thought. Yeah. In your experience, what are the differences between organizations that have an archivist working on their behalf and those who do not? Can I walk into an organization and pretty much understand by the questions I ask or how long it takes to find things that they don't have an archivist? No, I would say that it's also dependent on how the organization was set up originally. So they may have had the funding or had, for example, I'm on the board of an archive that at their inception had people with training in archival standards and library standards who worked in the archive and started the process in this certain way and then trained people to continue that process. And they don't have a trained archivist on staff right now, but because they were trained how to do that. And and, yeah. and that's the thing, a trained archivist, what is that? I mean, they don't have someone on staff who is who has a degree in archives. I should say that. That's more accurate. But they do have on-the-job training and were trained how that archive does things and have continued that work. So I think that if you entered an institution that maybe never had an organizational standard, it might be apparent. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Sorry, that's, that's not a very... No, no that's fine because it, it's a difficult answer. question, you know. I watch these television shows, like uh, there was a show called Bones. They would come in and they would have all this stuff, you know, laid out and, you know, they were trained properly. They knew how to look at bones and all this other stuff and mm-hmm. solve crimes, right? And mm-hmm. I know an archivist doesn't solve crimes necessarily, mm-hmm. but... I'm always hoping to solve a crime. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, that'd be cool. Uh, But I'm thinking, you know, a a trained archivist with a degree is going to know certain standards that have to be followed in order to make things work and and work efficiently and effectively versus an organization that doesn't really have that. And everybody has to invent some kind of a categorization method to Mm -hmm. do the work. But you know what I'm trying to say? It's difficult. I do. And actually, while you were saying that, it just made me think of, for example, when I started here, one of the issues, which I did not know until I started here, is that objects in the in a museum setting are organized by like objects. So all of the plates go in one area, all of the dresses go in another area. Everything is organized by like object. Okay. In the archive, Things are kept with their like home group, basically. So their donation, generally speaking. I mean, sometimes in a donation, there are things that pertain to multiple subject areas and may be separated out as needed. But for the most part, you're wanting to keep all of those documents and photographs together because together they tell that story. And when I started here, some of the archival materials had been separated out the way that you would do with objects. So there was a box full of passports and there was a box full of birth certificates. And so by themselves, they didn't tell that story, you know, of that person. We'll we'll say a person because that's mostly what I do here. I, I tell the stories of people, but I couldn't just pull out a folder and see everything related to that person that we had in our collection and know that I could potentially like, you know, use those materials to write a story about somebody or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, isn't whereas, that like the role of a curator to tell writing, the story? Telling the story. So a curator would take from the records that our registrar or I made to pull things together and create a story to yeah. share with the public. Right. Um, but you make that now, possible by the way you categorize. And how much of the story we tell in like our notes on the catalog oh, right. yeah. side. Of course. Yeah. yeah. But so that's a standard that the the registrar who was here previously, she followed the standards that she knew, which were how to organize objects, which is just not the way that we do things in the archival world. But she didn't know that. She wasn't trained that way. Right. And so that's not her fault. It's just those are some of the the smaller, like the things that you might not think about. Oh, yeah, I definitely wouldn't think about it. Without that training, you you know, you're going down one road and it may not be the most efficient way to help the organization and help tell that story because that's what it's all about, right? Right. Well, and on that note, I mean, because the nature of objects, you, you catalog and give a number to each specific piece of the object, because of that, they did that with those documents and I was able to reorder everything pretty easily. Okay. But that's another thing that with archival documents, you don't usually give a number to each individual piece of paper. It's just not possible. And if you were not trained in that way, you might think you have to do that. Yeah, yeah, and, I would. And then you might never get anywhere in your archive because you are still working on putting a number on, you know, all these tiny pieces of paper, whereas, and and you have, you know, 
a hundred boxes of material that has yet to be cataloged. So knowing those standards as well of how much to do can really help. For if cataloging. I don't have a number on every piece of paper, then how do I find it? Well, you carefully put things into a folder and then number that folder and then sort of describe what is within that folder. Okay. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. I would have never known that. Yeah. Very cool. Now, if I'm an organization who is thinking about an archivist, you know, maybe we need an archivist because we have a lot of documents that we can't easily find. And I've got to build a case for the board to try to get the funding or write a grant or whatever it is, then can I go to the, for instance, the Society of American Archivists and get advice? Oh, sure. One of the things that you gain more access by doing this, obviously, but I have a membership to the Society of American Archivists. I do believe, though, that there are some things that you can, without having a membership, I think you can still post on their listservs. For those who don't know, a listserv is sort of an email list of questions or job postings even sometimes. I know that when I started at the museum, there were certain things that I wasn't sure what direction to take. And so I posted questions about what would you do in this scenario? And it's, it's almost, it's like a forum basically. And it's just so valuable to get insight from your colleagues who can shed some light on what they would do. And Well, sometimes what they would do wouldn't exactly work for my institution. It would give me ideas of how I could move forward. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. that's that's very good. Do you have volunteers helping you every day? I don't. My mother is actually a volunteer for me, and she helps me as she can. There are different departments that do have volunteers more often. Our genealogy center has a nice group of volunteers who come and do various tasks. And it really depends on the skill set of your volunteers and right. what they can help with. Well, that's that's what I was wondering, because when you walk into an organization as an archivist, you're you're an army of one. Right. And you've got this training and, you know, so on. But there may be an awful lot to do with a million documents. Yeah, there are. And there are some little piddly things that you wouldn't think of. But I, for example, had my mom helping me with removing staples and paper clips from documents because they rust and can cause damage to documents. And I think she was doing it for a while. And then she asked me if it was really helping or if I was just finding busy work for her. And I said, no, it's really helping just think about how much time it's taking you to remove each of those staples and how much time that would take away from me cataloging, you know? So some volunteers also have technology, are comfortable with technology and can help with cataloging or can help with those spreadsheets that we're talking about, you know, putting, putting information into those spreadsheets. One of the institutions that I work with has volunteers come in and they use an overhead scanner and the institution has set everything up so they can just come in and flip pages that are being scanned and uploaded to a computer. And then they're handled by the people who work at that institution. But that's, you know, a time consuming process that just turning those pages helps. So. Yeah. Makes sense. 
Now, Cheyenne, we've covered a lot of very interesting topics. Are there any other thoughts or comments you'd like to add to help people out there understand the archivist's role, the value to their local museums across the United States? Yeah, um, I sort of mentioned this before, but I really view my job as keeping the stories of people from the past. Sometimes when I open a folder and I'm looking at photos and documents related to a person, because that's what my institution works with the most, I realize that I might be the last person who knew that this person existed. And I think that's a really special thing to keep their memory alive and be able to continue to share that story in the future. Thank you for that very much. You know, you've been so kind to help us understand this. I'd like to thank you, thank the Iowa Museum Association and their executive director, Cynthia Sweet, for their assistance, and Cheyenne Janstadter, the archives manager and outreach associate from the Museum of Danish America, located at 2212 Washington Street in Elkhorn, Iowa. Listeners, thanks for listening. If you're supporting one or more museums, cultural and heritage institutions, historical and genealogical societies who do not currently have an archivist. The information in this episode can be used to evaluate whether the organization is a good candidate for this role based on the criteria that Cheyenne and I have discussed. At least you have more information in order to begin the appropriate discussions with society leaders. You now have a better idea of when it's appropriate to have a qualified archivist on staff and what value they provide and what kinds of funds and donations are needed so the artifacts in the care of your local museum can be properly preserved on your behalf. Cheyenne, thank you so much. Thank you, Sean. I had a great time. Cheyenne, if there is an organization out there that is trying to understand why they might need an archivist and the value of an archivist and build a case for an archivist, would you be willing to allow them to contact you with questions? Yes, Sean, I'd be happy to talk with anybody about whether they are needing an archivist or also brainstorm ideas for using the staff or volunteers that they have now. I would be happy to do that. Oh, thank you so much. I know that you have my email address, but I can say it here. My email is cjanstatter. So Janstatter, it's C-J-A-N-S-D-A-T-T-E-R at danishmuseum.org. Okay. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time and especially your expertise. I think you've helped a lot of people. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. And with that, we'll end our time with guest Cheyenne Janstadter, the Archives Manager and Outreach Associate at the Museum of Danish America, located in Elkhorn, Iowa. Listeners, I recommend that you pay a visit to the Museum of Danish America. It looks like a great institution, and we'll be featuring the museum in an upcoming episode, so stay tuned for that. Okay, that's a wrap for this episode. In a future episode, we'll chat with a curator to learn more about that role. Music used today is from Scott Holmes and Symbolbird. Microstream Radio is a registered trademark. You can visit us at www.microstreamradio.com. This broadcast is owned and copyrighted by Microstream Radio. It cannot be rebroadcast, downloaded, copied, or used anywhere without the written permission of Microstream Radio. Thanks to everybody for listening. This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe. We'll see you all next time on Preservation Oaks. <laughs>